Hello and welcome. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time. This week, we bring you two stories by W.W. Jacobs, The Weaker Vessel and The Monkey's Paw. I thought it might be time to escape a little. While The Monkey's Paw is a horror story and his most famous piece, The Weaker Vessel is a clever and humorous story. As a matter of fact, most of his body of work is humorous, except The Monkey's Paw. It is said that Jacob's stories were elegant, emotional, and disturbing, and his characters are almost solely middle and lower middle class, and their blue-collar anxieties, ambitions, and resentment stroke the emotional furnace that propelled his writings. And now, The Weaker Vessel by W.W. Jacobs. Mr. Gribble sat in his small front parlor in a state of angry amazement. It was half past six, and there was no Mrs. Gribble. Worse still, there was no tea. It was a state of things that had only happened once before. That was three weeks after marriage, and on that occasion, Mr. Gribble had put his foot down with a bang that had echoed down the corridors of thirty years. The fire in the little kitchen was out, and the untidy remains of Mrs. Gribble's midday meal still disgraced the table. More and more dazed, the indignant husband could only come to the conclusion that she had gone out and been run over. Other things might possibly account for her behavior. That was the only one that would excuse it. His meditations were interrupted by the sound of a key in the front door, and a second later a small, anxious figure entered the room, and leaning against the table strove to get its breath. The process was not helped by the alarming distension of Mr. Gribble's figure. "'I got home as quick as I could, Harry,' said Mrs. Gribble, panting. "'Where's my tea?' demanded her husband. "'What do you mean by it? The fire's out and the kitchen is just as you left it.' I, "'I've been to a lawyer's, Henry,' said Mrs. Gribble. "'And I had to wait.' "'Lawyers?' repeated her husband. "'I got a letter this afternoon telling me to call. "'Poor Uncle George, that went to America, is gone.' "'That is no excuse for neglecting me,' said Mr. Gribble. "'Of course people die when they are old. "'Is that the one that got on and made money?' "'His wife, apparently struggling to repress a little excitement, nodded.' He, he's left me two hundred pounds a year for life, Henry, she said, dabbing at her pale blue eyes with a handkerchief. They're going to pay it monthly, six pounds, thirteen shillings, and fourpence a month. That's how he left it. Two hundred, began Mr. Gribble, forgetting himself. Two hundred, go and get my tea. If you think you're going to give yourself airs because your uncle's left you money... You won't do it in my house. He took a chair by the window, and while his wife busied herself in the kitchen, sat gazing in blank delight at the little street. Two hundred a year. It was all he could do to resume his wanted expression as his wife re-entered the room and began to lay the table. His manner, however, when she let a cup and saucer slip from her trembling fingers to smash on the floor, left nothing to be desired. 
"'It's nice to have money come to us, in our old age,' said Mrs. Gribble, timidly, as they sat at tea. "'It takes a load off my mind.' "'Old age?' said her husband disagreeably. "'What do you mean by old age? I'm fifty-two, and feel as young as ever I did.' "'You look as young as ever you did,' said the docile Mrs. Gribble. "'I can't see no change in you, at least not to speak of.' "'Not so much talk,' said her husband. "'When I want your opinion of my looks, I'll ask you for it. "'When do you start getting this money?' "'Tuesday week, first of May,' replied his wife. "'The lawyers are going to send it by registered letter.' Mr. Gribble grunted. "'I shall be sorry to leave the house for some things,' said his wife, looking round. "'We've been here a good many years now, Henry.' "'Leave the house,' repeated Mr. Gribble, putting down his teacup and staring at her. "'Leave the house! What are you talking about?' Oh, "'But we can't live here, Henry,' faltered Mrs. Gribble. "'Not with all that money. They are building some beautiful houses in Charlton Grove now. Bathroom, tiled hearths and beautiful stained glass in the front door, and all for twenty-eight pounds a year. Wonderful, said the other, with a mocking glint in his eye. And iron palings to the front garden, painted chocolate color picked out with blue, continued his wife, eyeing him wistfully. Mr. Gribble struck the table a blow with his fist. This house is good enough for me, he roared, and what's good enough for me is good enough for you. You want to waste money on show. That's what you want. Stained glass and bow windows. You want a bow window to loll about in, don't you? Shouldn't wonder if you don't want a servant gal to do the work. Mrs. Gribble flushed guiltily and caught her breath. We're going to live as we've always lived, pursued Mr. Gribble. Money ain't going to spoil me. I ain't going to put on no side just because I've come in for a little bit. If you had your way, we should end up in the workhouse. He filled his pipe and smoked thoughtfully while Mrs. Gribble cleared away the tea things and washed up. Pictures, good to look upon, formed in the smoke pictures of a hale, hearty man walking along the primrose path, arm in arm with two hundred a year, of the mahogany and plush of the saloon bar at the Grafton Arms, of Sunday jaunts, and the oval on summer afternoons. He ate his breakfast slowly on the first of the month, and the meal finished, took a seat in the window with his pipe, and waited for the postman. Mrs. Gribble's timid reminders concerning the flight of time and consequent fines for lateness at work fell on deaf ears. He jumped up suddenly and met the postman at the door, "'Has it come?' inquired Mrs. Gribble, extending her hand. By way of reply, her husband tore open the envelope and handed her the covering letter, counted the notes and coin, and placed them slowly in his pockets. Then, as Mrs. Gribble looked at him, he looked at the clock and, snatching up his hat, set off down the road. He was late home that evening, and his manner forbade conversation— Mrs. Gribble, with the bereaved air of one who has sustained an irremediable loss, sighed fitfully, and once applied her handkerchief to her eyes. "'That's no good,' said her husband at last. "'That won't bring him back.' "'Bring who back?' inquired Mrs. Gribble in genuine surprise. "'Why, your Uncle George,' said Mr. Gribble. 
That's why you're turning on the water cart for, ain't it? I wasn't thinking of him, said Mrs. Gribble, trying to speak bravely. I was thinking of... Well, you ought to be, interrupted her husband. It wasn't my uncle, poor chap, but I've been thinking of him off and on all day. That bloater paste you were eating now came from his kindness. I brought it home as a treat. I was thinking of my clothes, said Mrs. Gribble, clenching her hands underneath the table. When I found I had come in for that money, the first thing I thought was that I should be able to have a decent dress. My old ones are quite worn out, and as for my hat and jacket... Go on, said her husband fiercely. Go on. That's just what I said. Trust you with money, and we should be poorer than ever. I'm ashamed to be seen out, said Mrs. Gribble. Home's place is in the home, said Mr. Gribble. And so long as I'm satisfied with your appearance, nobody else matters. As long as I am pleased, that's everything. What do you want to go dressing yourself up for? Nothing looks worse than an overdressed woman. What are we going to do with all that money, then? inquired Mrs. Gribble in trembling tones. That'll do, said Mr. Gribble decidedly. That'll do. One of these days you'll go too far. You start throwing that money in my teeth and see what happens. I've done my best for you all these years, and there's no reason to suppose I shan't go on doing so. What did you say? What? Mrs. Gribble turned to him, a face rendered ghastly by terror. I, I said, it was my money, she stammered. Mr. Gribble rose and stood for a full minute regarding her. Then, kicking a chair out of his way, he took his hat from its peg in the passage, and with a bang of the street door that sent a current of fresh, sweet air circulating through the house, strode off to the Grafton Arms. It was past eleven when he returned, but even the spectacle of his wife laboriously darning her old dress failed to reduce his good humor in the slightest degree. In a frivolous mood, he even took a feather from the dismembered hat on the table and stuck it in his hair. He took the stump of a strong cigar from his lips, and exhaling a final cloud of smoke, tossed it into the fireplace. "'Uncle George dead,' he said at last, shaking his head. Hadn't pleasure acquaintance, but good man, good man. He shook his head again and gazed mistily at his wife. He was a teetotaler, she remarked casually. He was a teetotaler, repeated Mr. Gribble, regarding her equably. Good man, Uncle George, dead teetotaler. Mrs. Gribble gathered up her work and began to put it away. Bedtime, said Mr. Gribble, and led the way upstairs, singing. His good humor had evaporated by the morning, and having made a light breakfast of five cups of tea, he went off with lagging steps to work. It was a beautiful spring morning, and the idea of a man with two hundred a year and a headache going off to a warehouse instead of a day's outing seemed to border upon the absurd— what use was money without freedom? His toil was sweetened that day by the knowledge that he could drop it any time he liked and walk out, a free man, into the sunlight. By the end of a week his mind was made up, 
Each day that passed made his hurried uprising and scrambled breakfast more and more irksome, and on Monday morning, with hands in trouser pockets and legs stretched out, he leaned back in his chair and received his wife's alarming intimations as to the flight of time with a superior and sphinx-like smile. "'It's too fine to go to work today,' he said lazily. "'Come to that. Any day is too fine to waste at work.' Mrs. Gribble sat gasping at him. "'So on Saturday I gave him a week's notice,' continued her husband. "'And after Potts and Company had listened while I told them what I thought of them, they said they'd do without the week's notice.' "'You've never given up your job,' said Mrs. Gribble. "'I spoke to old Potts as one gentleman of independent means to another,' said Mr. Gribble, smiling. Thirty-five bob a week after twenty years' service, "'and he had the cheek to tell me I wasn't worth that. "'When I told him what I was worth, he talked about sending for the police. Oh, "'What are you looking like that for? "'I've worked hard for you for thirty years, and I've had enough of it. "'Now it's your turn.' "'You'd find it hard to get another place at your age,' said his wife. "'Especially if they wouldn't give you a good character.' "'Place?' said the other, staring. "'Place! I tell you I've done with work. "'For a man of my means to go on working for thirty-five bob a week is ridiculous.' "'But suppose anything happened to me,' said his wife in a troubled voice. "'Well, it's not very likely,' said Mr. Gribble. "'You're tough enough.' And if it did, your money would come to me. Mrs. Gribble shook her head. What? roared her husband, jumping up. I've only got it for life, Henry, as I told you, said Mrs. Gribble in alarm. I thought you knew it would stop when I died. And what's to become of me if anything happens to you then? demanded the dismayed Mr. Gribble. What am I to do? Mrs. Gribble put her handkerchief to her eyes. "'Ah, don't start weakening your constitution by crying!' shouted the incensed husband. "'What are you mumbling?' "'I said, let's hope you go first, sobbed his wife. "'Then it will be all right.' Mr. Gribble opened his mouth, and then, realizing the inadequacy of the English language for moments of stress, closed it again. He broke his silence at last in favor of Uncle George. "'Mind you,' he said, concluding a peroration which his wife listened to with her fingers in her ears. "'Mind you, I reckon I've been absolutely done by you and your precious uncle. I've given up a good situation, and now any time you fancy to go off the hooks, I'm to be turned into the street.' "'I'll try and live, for your sake, Henry,' said his wife. Think of my worry every time you're ill, pursued the indignant Mr. Gribble. Mrs. Gribble sighed, and her husband, after a few further remarks concerning Uncle George, his past and his future, announced his intention of going to the lawyers and seeing whether anything could be done. He came back in a state of voiceless gloom and spent the rest of a beautiful day indoors, smoking a pipe which had lost much of its flavor, and regarding with a critical and anxious eye the small, weedy figure of his wife as she went about her work. The second month's payment went into his pocket as a matter of course, but on this occasion Mrs. Gribble made no requests for new clothes or change of residence. 
A little nervous cough was her sole comment. Got a cold? inquired her husband, starting. I don't think so, replied his wife, and, surprised and touched at this unusual display of interest, coughed again. Is it your throat or your chest? he inquired gruffly. Mrs. Gribble coughed again to see. After five coughs, she said she thought it was her chest. You better not go out of doors today, then, said Mr. Gribble. Don't stand about in the drafts, and I'll fetch you a bottle of cough mixture when I go out. What about a lay down on the sofa? His wife thanked him, and reaching the sofa, watched with half-closed eyes as he cleared the breakfast table. It was the first time he had done such a thing in his life, and a little honest pride in the possession of a cough would not be denied. Dim possibilities of its vast usefulness suddenly occurred to her. She took the cough mixture for a week, by which time other symptoms, extremely disquieting to an ease-loving man, had manifested themselves. Going upstairs deprived her of breath. Carrying a loaded tea tray produced a long and alarming stitch in the side. The last time she ever filled the coal scuttle, she was discovered sitting beside it on the floor in a state of collapse. "'You'd better go and see the doctor,' said Mr. Gribble. Mrs. Gribble went. Years before, the doctor had told her that she ought to take life easier, and she was now able to tell him she was prepared to take his advice. "'And, you see, I must take care of myself now for the sake of my husband,' she said, after she had explained matters. "'I understand,' said the doctor. "'If anything happened to me,' began the patient. "'Nothing shall happen,' said the other. "'Stay in bed tomorrow morning, and I'll come round and overhaul you.' Mrs. Gribble hesitated. "'You might examine me and think I was all right,' she objected. "'And at the same time, you wouldn't know how I feel.' "'I know just how you feel,' was the reply. Goodbye. He came round the following morning, and following the dejected Mr. Gribble upstairs, made a long and thorough investigation of his patient. Say ninety-nine, he said, adjusting his stethoscope. Mrs. Gribble ticked off ninety-nines until her husband's ears ached with them. The doctor finished at last, and fastening his bag, stood with his beard in his hand, pondering. He looked from the little white-faced woman on the bed to the bulky figure of Mr. Gribble. "'You'd better lie up for a week,' he said decidedly. "'The rest will do you good.' "'Nothing serious, I suppose,' said Mr. Gribble, as he led the way downstairs to the small parlor. "'She ought to be all right, with care,' was the reply. "'Care?' repeated the other distastefully. "'What's the matter with her?' She's not very strong, said the doctor, and hearts don't improve with age, you know. Under favorable conditions, she's good for some years yet. The great thing is never to thwart her. Let her have her own way in everything. Own way in everything, repeated the dumbfounded Mr. Gribble. The doctor nodded. Never let her worry about anything, he continued. And above all, Never find fault with her. Not, said Mr. Gribble thickly, not even for her own good, 
unless you want to run the risk of losing her. Mr. Gribble shivered. Let her have an easy time, said the doctor, taking up his hat. Pamper her a bit if you like, it won't hurt her. Above all, don't let that heart of hers get excited. He shook hands with the petrified Mr. Gribble and went off, grinning wickedly. He had few favorites, and Mr. Gribble was not one of them. For two days the devoted husband did the housework and waited on the invalid. Then he wearied, and at his wife's suggestion, a small girl was engaged as a servant. She did most of the nursing as well, and having a great love for the sensational, took a grave view of her mistress's condition. It was a relief to Mr. Gribble when his wife came downstairs again, and he was cheered to see that she looked much better. His satisfaction was so marked that it brought on her cough again. "'It's this house, I think,' she said with a resigned smile. "'It never did agree with me.' "'Well, you've lived in it a good many years,' said her husband, controlling himself with difficulty. "'It's rather dark and small,' said Mrs. Gribble. "'Not but what is good enough for me, "'and I dare say it will last my time.' "'Nonsense,' said her husband gruffly. "'You want to get out a bit more. "'You've got nothing to do now. "'We are wasting all this money on a servant. "'Why don't you go out for little walks?' "'Mrs. Gribble went, after several promptings, "'and the fruit of one of them was handed by the postman "'to Mr. Gribble a few days afterwards. "'Half choking with wrath and astonishment, "'he stood over his trembling wife "'with the first draper's bill he had ever received.' One pound, two shillings, and threepence, three farthings, he recited. It must be a mistake. It must be for somebody else. Mrs. Gribble, with her hand to her heart, tottered to the sofa and lay there with her eyes closed. I had to get some dress material, she said in a quavering voice. You want me to go out, and I'm so shabby. I'm ashamed to be seen. Mr. Gribble made muffled noises in his throat. Then, afraid to trust himself, he went into the backyard and, taking a seat on an upturned bucket, sat with his head in his hands, peering into the future. The dressmaker's bill and a bill for a new hat came after the next monthly payment, and a bill for shoes came a week later. Hoping much from the well-known curative effects of fine feathers, he managed to treat the affair with dignified silence— the only time he allowed full play to his feelings, Mrs. Gribble took to her bed for two days, and the doctor had a heart-to-heart -heart talk with him on the doorstep. It was a matter of great annoyance to him that his wife still continued to attribute her ill health to the smallness and darkness of the house, and the fact that there were only two of the houses in Charlton Grove left caused a marked depression of spirits. It was clear that she was fretting. The small servant went further, and said that she was fading away. They moved at the September quarter, and a slight but temporary improvement in Mrs. Gribble's health took place. Her cheeks flushed, and her eyes sparkled over new curtains and new linoleum. The tiled hearths and the stained glass in the front door filled her with a deep and solemn thankfulness. The only thing that disturbed her was the fact that Mr. Gribble, to avoid wasting money over necessaries, contrived to spend an unduly large portion on personal luxuries. "'We ought to have some nice things for the kitchen,' she said one day. "'No money,' 
said Mr. Gribble laconically. And a mat for the bathroom? Mr. Gribble got up and went out. She had to go to him for everything. Two hundred a year and not a penny she could call her own. She consulted her heart, and that faithful organ responded with a bound that set her nerves quivering. If she could only screw her courage to the sticking point, the question would be settled for once and all. White and trembling, she sat at breakfast on the first of November, waiting for the postman, while the unconscious Mr. Gribble went on with his meal. The double knocks down the road came nearer and nearer, and Mr. Gribble, wiping his mouth, sat upright with an air of alert and pleased interest. Rapid steps came to the front door, and a double bang followed. "'Always punctual,' said Mr. Gribble good-humouredly. His wife made no reply, but, taking a blue-crossed envelope from the maid in her shaking fingers, looked around for a knife. Her gaze encountered Mr. Gribble's outstretched hand. "'After you,' he said sharply. Mrs. Gribble found the knife, and, hacking tremulously at the envelope, peeped inside it, and with her gaze fastened on the window, fumbled for her pocket. She was so pale and shook so much that the words died away upon her husband's lips. "'You had better let me take care of that,' he said at last. "'It is all right,' gasped his wife. She put her hand to her throat, and hardly able to believe in her victory, sat struggling for breath. Before her, grim and upright, her husband sat, a figure of helpless, smoldering wrath. "'You might lose it,' he said at last. "'I shan't lose it,' said his wife. To avoid further argument, she arose and went slowly upstairs. Through the doorway, Mr. Gribble saw her helping herself up by the banister, her left hand still at her throat. Then he heard her moving slowly about in the bedroom overhead. He took out his pipe and filled it mechanically, and was just holding a match to the tobacco when he paused and gazed with a puzzled air at the ceiling. "'Blame it if it don't sound like somebody dancing,' he growled. And now, The Monkey's Paw by W. W. Jacobs. Without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess. The former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical chances, put his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comments from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. "'Hark the wind!' said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. "'I'm listening,' said the latter grimly, surveying the board, as he stretched out his hand. "'Check!' "'I should hardly think that he's come tonight,' said his father, with his hand poised over the board. "'Mate,' replied the son. 
That's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slutchy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Paths a bog, and the roads a torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses in the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. There he is, said Herbert White, as the gate banged too loudly and heavy footsteps came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Mrs. White said, Tut-tut, and coughed gently, as her husband entered the room followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing himself. The sergeant major took hands and, taking the proffered seat by the fire, watched contentedly as his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter and he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts, as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of wild scenes and doughty deeds of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it, said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. He don't look to have taken much harm, said Mrs. White politely. I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man, just to look around a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers, said the old man. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. At least weighs nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him again. To look at it, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket. It's just an ordinary little paw, dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. "'What is there special about it?' inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son, and having examined it, placed it upon the table. "'It had a spell put on it, by an old fakir,' said the sergeant major. "'A very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives, and that those who interfered with it—' did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it, so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manners were so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter had jarred somewhat. Well, why don't you have three, sir? 
said Herbert White, cleverly. The soldier regarded him the way that middle age is wont to regard presumptuous youth. I have, he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. And, and did you really have the three wishes granted? asked Mrs. White. I did, said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. And has anybody else wished? persisted the old lady. The first man had his three wishes, yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. That's how I got the paw. His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. If you had your three wishes, it's no good to you now then, Morris, said the old man at last. What do you keep it for? The soldier shook his head. Fancy, I suppose, he said slowly. I did have some idea of selling it, but I don't think I will. It has caused me enough mischief already. Besides, people won't buy. They think it's a fairy tale, some of them. And those who do think anything of it want to try it first and pay me afterward. If you could have another three wishes said the old man, eyeing him keenly. Would you have them? I don't know, said the other. I don't know. He took the paw, and dangling it between his forefinger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. Better let it burn, said the soldier solemnly. If you don't want it, Morris, said the other, give it to me. I won't, said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his possession closely. How do you do it? he inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major. But I warn you of the consequences. Sounds like Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White as she rose and began to set the supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? His husband drew the talisman from his pocket, and all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back in his pocket, and placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper, the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldiers' adventures in India. If the tale about the monkey's paw is not more truthful than those he's been telling us, said Herbert as the door closed behind their guest, just in time to catch the last train. We shan't make much out of it. Did you give anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White, "'regarding her husband closely. "'A trifle,' said he, coloring slightly. "'I didn't want it, but I made him take it, "'and he pressed me again to throw it away.' "'Likely,' said Herbert, with pretended horror. "'Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. "'Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with. "'Then you can be henpecked.' "'He darted around the table,' pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with an antimacassar. 
Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact, he said slowly. Seems to me I've got all I want. If you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you? said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then. That'll just do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman, as his son, with a solemn face somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted his words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished it, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son, as he picked it up and placed it on the table. And I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, though. There's no harm done. But it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again, while the two men finished their pipes. Outside, the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence, unusual and depressing, settled on the three which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the rest of the night. "'I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed,' said Herbert, as he bade them good night. "'And something horrible squatting on top of your wardrobe watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains.' He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire, and seeing faces in it. The last was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver, he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, he laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room which it had lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which beckoned no great belief in its virtues. "'I suppose all soldiers are the same,' said Mrs. White. "'The idea of our listening to such nonsense! How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could two hundred pounds hurt your father?' "'Might drop on his head from the sky,' said the frivolous Herbert. "'Morris said the things happened so naturally,' said his father, "'that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence.' "'Well, don't break into the money before I come back,' said Herbert, as he rose from the table. "'I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you.' His mother laughed, and following him to the door watched him down the road and returning to the breakfast table was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity, all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant majors of bibulous habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home, 
she said as they sat at dinner. I dare say, said Mr. White, pouring himself some beer. But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That I'll swear to. You thought it did, said the old lady soothingly. I say it did, replied the other. There was no thought about it. I had just... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside, who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the two hundred pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it, and then, with sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White, at the same moment, placed her hands behind her, and hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively, and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited, as patiently as her sex would permit, for him to broach his business, but he was at first strangely silent. I was asked to call, he said at last, and stooped and picked a piece of cotton from his trousers. I come from Ma and Megan's. The old lady started. Is anything the matter? she asked breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? Her husband interposed. There, there, mother, he said hastily. Sit down and don't jump to conclusions. You have not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir. And eyed the other wistfully. I'm sorry, began the visitor. Is he hurt? demanded the mother wildly. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly. But he is not in any pain. Oh, thank God, said the woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that. Thank... She broke off as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned on her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. She caught her breath and turned to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling hand on his. There was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery, said the visitor, at length, in a low voice. Caught in the machinery? repeated Mr. White, in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat, staring out the window, and taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it as he had been wont to do in their old courting days, nearly forty years before. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to the visitor. It is hard. The other coughed, and rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wishes me to convey their sincere sympathy with you in your great loss, he said, without looking round. I beg that you will understand. I am only their servant, and merely obeying orders. There was no reply, 
The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look of such as his friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action. I want to say that Ma and Megan's disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand, and rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds, was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. In the huge new cemetery, some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead, and came back to the house, steeped in shadows and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realize it, and remained in a state of expectation as though of something else to happen, something else which was to lighten this load, too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed, and expectations gave way to resignation, the hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly. You will be cold. It is colder for my son, said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sounds of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm, and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully, and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The paw, she cried wildly, the monkey's paw! He started up in alarm. Where? Where is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling across the room toward him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it? It's in the parlor, on the bracket, he replied, marveling. Why? She cried and laughed together, and bending over, kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? he questioned. The other two wishes, she replied rapidly. We've only had one. Was that not enough? he demanded fiercely. No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly, and wish our boy alive again. The man sat in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. Good God, you are mad, he cried aghast. Get it, she panted. Get it quickly and wish, oh, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you're saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman feverishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go get it and wish. 
cried his wife, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He has been dead ten days, and besides, he... I would not tell you else, but I, I could only recognize him by his clothes. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, and dragged him towards the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape from the room seized upon him, and he caught his breath as he found he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way around the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white, and expectant, and his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish! she cried in a strong voice. It is foolish and wicked, he faltered. Wish! repeated his wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank, trembling into a chair as the old woman with burning eyes walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end, which had burned below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls, until, with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back into his bed, and a minute afterward the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but sat silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time screwing up his courage, he took the box of matches, and striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs the match went out, and he paused to strike another, and at the same moment a knock came so quiet and stealthy as to be scarcely audible, sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hand and spilled in the passage. He stood motionless, his breath suspended until the knock was repeated, then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. "'What's that?' cried the old woman, starting up. "'A rat,' said the old man in shaking tones. "'A rat. It passed me on the stairs.' His wife sat up in bed listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. "'It's Herbert!' She ran to the door, but her husband was before her and, catching her by the arm, held her tightly. "'What are you going to do?' he whispered hoarsely. "'It's my boy! It's Herbert!' she cried, struggling mechanically. "'I forgot it was two miles away! What are you holding me for? Let go! I must open the door!' "'For God's sake, 
Don't let it in, cried the old man, trembling. You're afraid of your own son, she cried, struggling. Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert. I'm coming. There was another knock, and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice strained and panting. The bolt, she cried loudly. Come down, I can't reach it. But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If only he could find it before the thing got inside. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back. And at the same moment, he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish— the knocking ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair draw back and the door open. A cold wind rushed up the staircase, and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him the courage to run down to her side, and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp, flickering opposite, shone on a quiet and deserted road. And there's our stories for this evening. I hope you enjoyed The Weaker Vessel and The Monkey's Paw by W.W. W. Jacobs. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time.